everybody. Welcome to Alumless. Thank you for joining us for this edition. Uh, it is great to see you, Chris. Thank you for being here as always. Uh, What's hard, Ryan, is that you and I see each other multiple times a day. And I know we were just on a call the last like couple times today already. So it's <laughs> nice to see you as, you know, overstating it, I guess. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm done with you, Ryan. Let's keep going. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, alumless is a CMAC production on the show. We talk about engagement strategies in university advancement. We have an awesome show today. We have Chris Davitt, who is the Senior Vice Chancellor for Advancement at the University of Pittsburgh, joining us. It's going to be fantastic. Chris has his patented, uh, I don't know, what do we call it? Listeners, Chris has a, a pennant uh, behind him for, for Pitt, and he changes the pennant for every client that he works with, which is a really a pretty amazing. Have you ever messed it up, Chris? And you had a different pennant flying behind yeah, you? Yeah, and I and I got grief for it for months afterwards because it was a rival school I had up to. <laughs> it's a bad I, mistake. <laughs> I can see it going wrong every once yeah. in a while, right? It goes right most of the time, and it's a nice mm. touch. I got to yep. hand it to you. Thank I you. keep the drab extra room background going. <laughs> you know, weird it's a very good uh, look. plant. You know, guitar that I rarely play. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Well, we're broadcasting not live today. We have pre-recorded this episode, but we're glad you're joining us. Uh, we are on the road today, although we're hoping to chime in while we're at the University of Denver uh, when this episode drops. So uh, we are um, going to have a great show today. Before we get too far down the road, I want to make sure to introduce our sponsoring partner, which is, of course, Protopia. We, as engagement pros, are always thinking about how to create more volunteering opportunities. Why is that? The reason is the big one is that volunteers give at two or even three times the rate. This is important, particularly for those alumni uh, leaders working in integrated advancement models. We're trying to create a pipeline of donors. At the same time, students throughout their educational journey have questions and could use the advice of alumni as engagement pros were asked to figure out ways to make the alumni network available from prospective student to former student and develop partnerships across campus that will showcase in real terms how valuable the alumni network can be. That's what Protopia solves for. Without requiring alumni or students to sign up for another app or platform, Protopia's AI-powered technology activates alumni and turns them into volunteers in a flash. Students and alumni seeking advice are connected while removing the administrative burden of the staff. Protopia is the tool that you've been looking for. Visit protopia.co forward slash alumless and be sure to mention that Ryan and Chris sent you. All right. Protopia it is actually. And Pitt is a Protopia customer, one of the original customers, which you saw. Fantastic. Uh, so, Chris, let's get our conversation started today. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your time at Lehigh and, and or Cornell University. Did you ever experience a major leadership change during either of those tenures? And, and what were the uh, implications of those? How did you handle it? What was it that you went through? And how did you try to guide your team through those changes? Uh Yes, at Lehigh. No, at Cornell. I was there for five years, so it was pretty stable during that time. But at Lehigh, we had a change in presidential leadership. And um, I my position at the time reported to the president. It was one of the few alumni positions in the country that had that direct line. And so I sat at the leadership table for the university. And I was hired by a president named Greg Farrington, who left. And in an interim came in, a former board chair. And then a new president was named. And it was a very, a year later, I left to go to Cornell. So I'm not going to connect all the dots in there. But the point I'm making is it was a rough go, given the changes that were happening in the direction of the institution. Um, managed it fine. And I, my goal as the leader was to try to keep it away from my staff. So as much as possible, shield them from all the turmoil that was going on at that level behind the curtain. So there are interesting moments. I'm really looking forward to talking to Chris about some of what she's experienced in her career uh, in the same category. But um there are times when it goes smoothly too. Uh, and I think some of that, uh, well, we'll find out from Chris. She's going to tell us how it went. Yeah. A bit. <laughs> yeah. And as a consultants, we often get hired during moments of transition, right? Maybe uh, an alumni a leader has just been hired. Maybe one has just left and there is an interim leader in place. Uh, I think at this moment in time, you're, you're covering, uh, you know, to keep things continuity going at uh, a couple different schools. Uh, yeah. And yeah. 
Uh, so, you know, how do you help provide that type of stability? Like, what do you do when you're in those interim roles or, or help kind of during these periods of transition? Yeah, I, I stabilize, um, find some continuity, sort of calm things down. But there are times where it lasts long enough or your remit from a vice president or even a president sometimes is to find out what's wrong as quickly as you can and start making changes. And um, those are the fun ones where you actually can get in. The, the thing I like about it is that you actually feel like you're a member of a staff team again. You're with people who like work with you every day on the same problems. And so most of the time it's stabilized and provides some continuity and leadership. And then to make those assessments as you go and make changes, if there's enough time to do so, that's the part I like best where you have a, really a good chance to sort of change the court. It's like, it's like doing an assessment like we do Ryan all the time where we write up the report but now you're doing it real time and you're making those changes as you're there live, literally making those, you know, organizational changes or programmatic changes. And, and, and you sort of see the report come to life in front of you. That's how I, that's how I would describe it. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting work. And I actually think, you know, of all the things that we do to help clients, that sort of longer term interim type of yep. coaching and, and. Uh, helping stabilize programs is the most interesting because not only are you making those decisions in real time, you're also developing a much more important rapport with the staff yeah, and the yeah, other yeah. leaders, the volunteers as well. You're not just interviewing them once, right? You're you're really sort of engaged in a in a, a, a building process with yep. the team as it is. All right, well, let's we're going to have a great conversation here. Let's bring out to the show Chris Davitt. Hey, Chris, how are you? Hello, nice to see you both. <laughs> We're glad to have you. Chris is the Senior Vice Chancellor for Philanthropic and Alumni Engagement at the University of Pittsburgh, and she is also the Chief Development Officer for Pitt's Academic Medical Partner, UPMC. Uh, so it's I, you are you are I have a much larger, even larger role than the one that I <laughs> said off the top of the show. The How is that even possible? How do you manage all of these important roles? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it it's it actually, and like if we kind of talk about the reorg that I ended up implementing it, it all kind of makes sense. We work very closely with UPMC and it's mostly with our clinical faculty who had dual appointments, both as uh, practitioners and clinicians and also as researchers and, and faculty. So largely it's figuring out a more systematic way to support them rather than having, you know, a lot of different people knocking on the same doors. Um, but it, you know, it's sort of, I think it leans into the complexity of of our organizations by simply acknowledging that it's complex and allowing me to hopefully make some sense of it. Depends on the day, but I mean, how big is that universe in terms of FTEs? How many people? In about two hundred eighty FTEs directly, and then you go beyond that when you look at the regional hospitals and other yep. things. So. Yeah. So it's folks on the call listening to us, Chris has 280 direct reports is what this boils down to. Yes. <laughs> That's a lot of reviews to write. <laughs> Sweet heavens. Yes. <laughs> Touched a nerve there. Uh, well, well, Chris uh, Marshall shared with me, Chris Davitt, that, um, you know, that back when you first started, not too long after that, there was a, a major leadership change. The chancellor stepped down. Um while you were planning the campaign, which you, right. of course, are now in, right? Uh, or not have, quite. <laughs> not quite. Okay. Yeah, All right. We're still so in that still, interim period. Yeah. Still in that fun, quiet, not so quiet period right. where everyone's talking about it, but it's not public. I got it. And so, but how did that change shake things up? You know, what what were? How did you kind of keep things stable and then and then forge ahead? Yeah, it's, I'm going to uh, quote some of what Chris said about sort of being a part of the team. But so when, when Chancellor Gallagher decided to step down, I would say it was surprising, but I think as you look at it, it was part of the wave of a lot of university presidents and chancellors who had gotten through COVID and other challenges. And I, I think, you know, it, it sort of fit better, but it was surprising because we were coming out of COVID and, and really felt we were, um, with the help of Chris and others, in a good position to kind of have that, you know, that noisy, quiet phase of a campaign. And so it was put on pause, I think from, um, you know, I was leading a staff that had been through a lot of change. Um, my role was a new role, but there had been interim leadership in the advancement function for almost two years. And then I come in and then the chancellor changes and the head of UPMC had changed. And so 
from a staff perspective, I just try to be very communicative about we are doing all the right things. This is who we serve. This is our mission. We already have the receipts that we're headed in the right direction. So we're going to continue to do work. I communicated as much as I could about the search process. And I always preface this kind of information sharing by saying, I'm going to try to remove as much of the uncertainty you have about X topic. Now, by sharing this information, I will be creating new uncertainty. Like, let's just have that as the baseline. But the certainty will be, I will continue to tell you what I know. And that included how I was able to contribute to the search, both before it was live and when it was live. I didn't share anything about the finalist interviews, but I did share that I was interviewing them because I wanted the team to know that I had a seat at that table. I was not a decision maker, but I was able to share what our roles were. And so I think that helped. On the advancement side, um, we decided to do, and it's kind of very quiet, sort of a campaign dress rehearsal, um, which we're informally calling Meet the Challenge, all about student support. Because Mm -hmm. one of the things that came up in our readiness assessment was that every dean, every director, they all agreed that creating more support for student success was shared. And, and, you know, as I joked, I could not imagine a new chancellor coming in and saying, how dare you secure new (laughs) gifts for students? That has nothing to do with the way I'm going to run this school. So, so we've done a lot of work and what that really has to do is both empowering the staff, but also helping to support our deans who, who are, a number of them are fairly new. So we're kind of in the midst of this. Chancellor Gable started about 80 days ago, Joan Gable, and she is already, you know, ready to go uh, in campaign planning. So that this uh, interim period is going to be shorter than I expected. But that's kind of how we tried to piece it together. That makes sense. But you arrived at Pitt in, in 2017 and, and right. you led an extensive restructuring of the fundraising and engagement efforts there. Uh, what did that realignment entail and, and why was it important to shift things around at that time? Yeah, it. So I did come in in this new role with this dual report to the chancellor of the university and the CEO and president of UPMC. And basically what was happening is there was health sciences fundraising happening and there was um, provost school, so not the health sciences schools, and then athletics, but then the cancer center, and then, you know, various other things. And so with our top donors, it was sort of death by a thousand blows, right? You might be asked by multiple people for multiple gifts without any recognition of what um, your overall interests were and really nobody creating a comprehensive vision for what you could do. The other thing is that Pitt is so fortunate to be in Pittsburgh because we have incredible foundation support and leadership here. But that had also become a really wonderful way to not take advantage of individual fundraising opportunity. And so the over-reliance on our foundation partners in particular, and and I always want to say I am grateful for every single gift and particularly for the relationships that we have um, with our our faculty have and we have as as advancement staff. But we have 350,000 alumni and an unending pool of grateful patients, and we were not optimizing that. Yes. So, so I did, I sort of threw it all up in the air, got rid of the various silos, created one integrated department with core, you know, centers of excellence, whether it's research, donor relations, um, corporate and foundation relations, communications. Um, we created a principal gift function, which we really didn't have in, in as resourced a way as we do now. And then identified Um, individual giving for the health sciences and for what we call schools and centers. And then beyond that, there are sort of the universe. Athletics is in there, international advancement, regional campuses, volunteer management. So the goal is you have this core, but you have the flexibility to scale it up or scale it down depending on who you are trying to serve. So When the dean of the Dietrich School of Arts and Sciences decides she wants to sort of launch her own fundraising initiative a couple of years ago, we were able to create a campaign called 
if you're from New England, you're not going to love this name, but it really did work. The Big Dig with yeah. Dietrich. <laughs> Dietrich, inspirational giving. And I kept saying, but I'm from Rhode Island and you need to know that the Big Dig. <laughs> and the Boston, All the Boston people just gasped. Yeah. But it actually, you know, it became such a talking point and the volunteers bought into it. So they started out with a goal of $12 million. They just wrapped it up with $28 million. So long wow. story short, some of it was just reorganizing, but some of it was creating culture, right? We we didn't have a lot of the basic processes to make it clear who manages prospects. And there had been a lot of turnover. And so some of it, part of the reorg, similar to what I said about the chancellor transition, was an opportunity to communicate, to listen, to share what I observed, what I thought the challenges were, and to kind of get buy-in. So it was about a almost a year process. Um, but I think we ended up doing, I mean, I, th- I think it's proven to be the right thing. When you throw all those pieces up in the air, does it, you said it took a year. Did it settle before the pandemic or were you still, okay, well, that's a big win. Thank yeah. goodness. I know yeah. I keep doing this and this is the whole thing. You're going to see me. It's a big shoe emoji. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were pretty much, we announced it. It was even less than a year. We announced it in the summer of 2018, um, and some of that was a little bit of a wing and a prayer, but I just felt like I was going to start running out of runway. runway I needed right, to just yeah. start doing. And, you yeah. know, I do I have an alum who has this great phrase that he wants a good do say ratio. Do you do more than you say? Mm. And I, mm. I needed to do. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we you, were fortunately well in hand. You're going to have people listening to this, watching this that have, um, uh, similar types of roles or we'll be moving to those roles. Do you give that advice of the do and say balance or is it depend on the situation? I think it depends on the situation because what, what I would say is, um, you know, I think the mistake I made was not, I underestimated, or I guess I overestimated the community, not my staff, but the broader university communities understanding of, how complicated fundraising is and how many things Mm. have to be right. So part of it was I decided I just had to do something because that was evidence that I was doing something. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think, I mean, Chris, you've heard me say this, but I I had a couple of tough conversations where I said, you know, you brought me in to build a supercar and building the engine is what we need to do. And that takes a lot of time and expertise if you want me to keep repainting the exterior so you think the car is new, I'll do it, but it won't run any better. Um, but that only bought me Good so analogy. much patience. That's a great, great analogy. Yeah, the other one I used at one point was you want me to keep redecorating the penthouse, but the rest of the rest of the structure is on fire. Right. So I became alarmist in some points, but uh, but it, it did work out, and it was mostly a, mostly to the team of like this is what we're doing, and we're committing yeah. to this. Yeah. But but it's implied, I think, in a do and say like model you just described. But there's a listen phase too, where you take time to sort of get that input, and eventually you got to do. I totally agree with you in that. So yeah, and and it's interesting what you hear because sometimes what you hear is that people don't want to tell you, right? And that's when I knew we had some morale challenges. Yeah, yeah. and so some of it was just being very visible and and showing up. Um. And so, some of it was, yeah, a, a, and also being being able to say, I am totally hearing you that this is frustrating. That's not going to get fixed this time. And let mm-hmm. me let me help you understand why. I just yeah. had to double down on candor, but I wasn't going to make promises I couldn't deliver. Yep. Uh, you, I want to go back on script. Sorry about that. Okay. That was my favorite way of talking with you, Chris, when we get you off script. So. <laughs> oh, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. <laughs> But um, let me shift to alumni engagement. I'm uh, full disclosure. I'm completely biased in your particular alumni leader because she's a, a dear friend and someone who I worked with back at Lehigh and Nancy Merritt. But when you think of the, where you're headed and the role of alumni engagement in a the reorganization that you're ha- but ultimately in a, as you're headed to a campaign, where do you see the role of alumni engagement playing in that campaign? Yeah, it's critical. I just want to take a step back on the Nancy Merritt fan club because when when I when I interviewed with her, I've never done this, but I said to her, 
oh my God, I just have to figure out how to hire you like halfway through the meeting with her, right? Yeah, all of my negotiating and leverage is like right out the door. But well, she, she called me after that meeting and I told her to go throw, I said, throw a big number out. She's throwing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Yeah, you bet. She's, she would be worth it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the, I, I mean, I think alumni engagement is a value in and of itself. Full stop. Hmm. Do I hope it will lead to more money being raised? Of course. Yeah. But I think any campaign, and even before you have a campaign, any investment in alumni engagement, you have to hold that as a value that is a value in and of itself. It's a little bit like, you know, you hear these arguments about teaching music to kids and it's like, well, I'll help their math. It's like, no, you should teach music <laughs> because it's good for them. Like, it's great that there are these other benefits. So I, I think we're really fortunate, too, in our, um, the Pitt Alumni Association leadership is all in, right? They've created a great strategic plan with Nancy and her team. And so it's very easy to talk about the value of engagement, um, it, it, whether they're hiring, whether they're ambassadors, whether they're buying season tickets, yep. whether they're mentoring, they're showing up, all of those things. Um, and then I think when we get into a campaign, you know, this is where you actually make it tangible. Like, what does it mean to be an engaged alum? And how do we want to measure that? And how do we want the chancellor to be able to say, and Chris, I'm stealing this right from you. You know, there are two things we're going to, we're going to be able to say we've done in this campaign with the first one being how alumni have participated. One, that's a great message, right? And two, it gets away from this whole, you only come and talk to me when you need money. Right, exactly. But uh, so I, I I see them as as really hand in glove. But even without a campaign, you know, our focus on the Pit Alumni Association is, is, is you know, we're, is 100 yeah. percent because it is a value in and of itself. Yep. Let's switch back uh, to your previous experience. So you've had time at University of Pennsylvania and mm -hmm. at Brown, two elite private universities. You're now at an elite public institution. Um, talk a little, do a little compare and contrast. What are the biggest differences? What are the, some of the things that feel the same? Anything unique about a public versus, I'm, I'm sure there are, but fire away. Give us some co compare and contrast. Yeah, it's been so interesting um, because it, they're all different. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously it's not, it's not an easy time for higher ed as far as the public discourse, but it, yep. particularly for public universities, right? Like I haven't seen a lot of complaining about the tuition rates at private schools. I mean, there is, but when it becomes to schools that get public funding, that sort of discussion of what is ROI is, is, is pretty real. Right. And, and it's valid. Like if you're taking taxpayers money, you need to be able to be accountable for that. And so that's a different um, a different gear than I was used to dealing with at yeah. the other two schools. Yeah. Um, and I also have found that and I don't know if this is because of the history of public funding or just how the mission started, but Pitt's history of giving is sort of lower key. Then, you know, I mean, if you're at an Ivy League, I mean, the donor participation rates are really high and there's a longer tradition of giving because they've relied on it for longer. Yep. And yep. so I think for me, it was really figuring out where we were on that donor affinity stage. You know, we came up with some statistics really early on that not only were our major and principal gift donors giving at significantly less than their capacity rating, but we were asking them. Asking. I remember that moment we talked about <laughs> that. Yeah. The, that's the one that sort of hurts my heart. Yeah. yeah right. um, and so, and I, and, you know, I don't know what that comes from, but just figuring out that not only should we ask their capacity, but our students and our faculty and our researchers, they deserve it. And so do the donors, like they deserve, a, they deserve a vision for how they can contribute. And so I think we're just a little further back. Starters blocks are a little bit further back. Um, but having said that, I think the mission of public universities is great. Like you, I mean, I've loved every place I've worked. I've never worked at any place I was ashamed to ask for money. 
But, um, you know, a large public university with its mandate to serve is is pretty exciting. You know, particularly those days you're maybe not having the best day, but you yeah. can look up and it could be like, okay, but, you know, I, I need to get I need to get working here because this is important. That uh, It's almost like there's a what was in place. And I know you're working on changing this, but there's like this blue collar humility to what we can ask for as a public institution. Right. Yet the capacities were showing us more. Have, have you shed that burden from your staff? Do they feel freer to be more targeted and higher in their asking? Are we still dealing with some of their rep? The old, the old way, put it that way. Well, I think so. I mean, Chancellor Gable is very focused on putting together those pride points, really, and yeah. sort of like, yeah. what, what should we talk about? Um, and, you know, let me just say, I'm also at a school that has a big-time athletics program, and while people want to complain here or there about the sports, that that is something where we're very visible and, you know, sure. get very excited about. Um, I think on the team, we do know how to, to dream bigger. We, we just recently closed a $25 million gift for the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. And it's a grateful patient gift. The surgeon is an incredible partner. Um, the chair of the orthopedic surgery has been great. The dean of the School of Medicine has been great. But it all started with a fundraiser who, you know, did the work with the grateful patient over seven years, including the first gift of $1,000. So he kind of presented that case. Um, and, and pointed at all the departments, I mean, the hundreds of people who had something to do with how this worked out. And I think that's how we try to tell the story with the team. Like, guess what? Like we can do these things yeah. and, and here's evidence. But when um, you take, take out some of those partnerships and you go back to the mentality room before that gift, instead of being 25, might've been 5 million. It still would have been right. a good gift, but it, that's right. Five times. I mean, we still deal with the people who, you know, and I talked to the surgeon and he's like, you'd be amazed at how many people think that I asked for this gift yesterday. Like when he, <laughs> when he talks about yeah. the amount of time he, and the, like, so there's still that gap. I think I there's the gap sometimes of people who just assume because they have a great idea, somebody should give them a ton of money. Um, but I do think we're changing that. And I think, I think Chancellor Gable has that very high yeah, like aspiration. It. Yeah. That's great. All right, Ryan. I'll just let you go back on screen. No, that's, that's okay. We, we had a couple of minutes here in the in the live portion of the show, and I wanted to ask, and we can carry some of the questions we didn't get to in the in the front half to the to the second half. But Chris, I wanted to ask you about your leadership style. Chris says that you're one of the funniest people he's ever met, and I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, I think does, he means sarcastic. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Is that, Entertainingly is funny in calls. I, I have a list of davitisms that I've kept <laughs> along the years here. So <laughs> he promoted our last show by talking about davitisms. And, and so I guess I was just wondering, is there some intentionality around your use of sarcasm or humor? Or how do you describe your leadership style? Uh, well, you know, there's trying to be funny. Like I am the middle of three daughters in an Irish family. So like we get to the funny pretty quickly, no matter what the situation yep. is. Um, <laughs> I do, I do find humor funny in tense situations. And I think the further you get up in the leadership, your my willingness to crack a joke, hopefully appropriately, I think does kind of take tension out if people are feeling stressed. You know, the, the challenge with hiring and retaining smart, talented, ambitious, caring people is sometimes like that it's work feels hard to them, right? So it's important that I kind of I think help everybody not take themselves too seriously. I have to say, I just, I really try to be very approachable and honest. You know, I, I'll never forget meeting John Zeller, who was my boss at Penn when I came for an interview and we walked into the building and he knew everybody's name. Didn't matter who they were, what they did. And I, I don't think that's an act, right? I think that is a genuinely nice person making an effort to know people because he values what they do. And so that kind of leadership, you know, I've learned from people like that. Um, and I think, I think what I try to do is, you know, it's all about sort of being an advocate for talent, right? Like I need to make sure people have the resources they need, remove obstacles, advocate and correct when needed, but hopefully constructively, like we're always learning, right? And I think lastly, what we, you know, I've talked about that gift. If that gift had not closed, there was still so much to celebrate on uh, uh, about how the team conducted themselves, 
right? So it's not just what we accomplish, but I try to remark on how it's done so that people understand that the way you, you just can't be a jerk. You can close a lot of gifts. And really, if you're a terrible person, like that's not a win. And it's certainly not a long-term win. So, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the alumni relations or the events team who are just making sure every guest feels welcome, or it's knowing that the all our endowed fund reports got out like beautifully two weeks ahead of schedule, like that stuff matters. And so I just, I mean, I just try to be appreciative. Awesome. Well, we will hold there our conversation and uh, please listeners be uh, sure to pick up the podcast edition of Alumnus. You can find anywhere you find podcasts and uh, listen to our bonus conversation with Chris Davitt, where we'll cover lots of territory. And uh, Chris, before we depart, who is our guest in two weeks? Someone Chris Davitt knows well is uh, Carla Carla Willis from Washburn McGoldrick. She's uh, a colleague of ours. She was on a project that we did a lot of work with Pitt. Um, but Carla has been recently named a principal at Washburn McGoldrick. We're really excited about that. Yeah. Wow, and um, she well-deserved. And she's just got a great way about her. She's super smart. She has been a lot of really cool experiences. And we're going to have Carla, a uh, colleague of ours, on in the next session. Awesome. Well, thank you for our presenting sponsor, Protopia, for making alumnus happen. And do be sure to pick up the podcast edition. For Chris Davitt and Chris Marshall, I'm Ryan. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks. Hey, listeners. Chris and I were going to record an ad discussing all the great aspects of Protopia, of which there are many. But instead, we thought it would be even better to hear from one of Protopia's current partners. Here's Sally Sistar, Executive Director of Alumni Engagement at Denison University, talking about her experience with the technology. If you like what you hear, be sure to go to protopia.co forward slash alumnus and check it out. How do you see Protopia fitting into your plans? You've mentioned a few ways that I might imagine it fitting in, but what do you think? It's a tremendous fit. Listen, I cannot tell you how excited I was when I took this job to know that they already had Protopia, right? It's a very, very smart decision. Um, because one, it just, you know, it with the AI technology enabled, like it takes us out of the equation, right? It is really a great tool for alumni and students to ask those questions and be connected to, you know, the the top experts, right, or the top individuals to answer those questions for them. Um, what I've been really excited to hear about here at Denison is, you know, if that question goes to five alumni, well, all five of our graduates are answering. And then it gets into, you know, like um, a train of communications between them and the individual asking the question. So it's really facilitating community for us in a way that we couldn't do that ourselves. If we were at the helm of trying to, you know, facilitate someone's question going to those individuals, right? It's just, it's automatic and that's the beauty of it. Um, the other thing I would say to you is that it is also, it's bringing people into, um, it's engaging alumni that may not have engaged with us in any other way, right? But they really are appreciative that, you know, they get an opportunity to, to help another alumni um, member or help a student. Um, so I just, I mean, I can't say enough great things about what a difference maker that has been for us on the engagement level. All right, and we're back. Thank you for picking up the podcast edition of Alumnus. We're thrilled to have you, listener, uh, checking in on our conversation. We are back with Chris Davitt, who is the Senior Vice Chancellor for Philanthropy and Alumni Engagement at the University of Pittsburgh. Chris is also the Chief Development Officer for Pitt's Academic Medical Partner. Uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and we're great. To, we're grateful for your time, Chris. Thank you for joining us. We we had a lively conversation in the first half of the show, and I thought it'd be good to catch listeners up just a little bit more on the University of Pittsburgh, which is a really interesting school. I've actually 
been on campus. I there was a short period of time where I was applying to graduate schools, and I was going to be a PhD student in rhetoric and communication studies. And I attended. I actually visited Pittsburgh at, at the Cathedral of Learning, where the rhetoric and communications department had their offices. And I attended something called an agora, which was. Uh, this uh, get together where the rhetoric folks all are yelling at each other, exchanging ideas, and presenting different ideas. So, I didn't end up uh, didn't end up there, but it was fun visiting. But maybe you could share just a little bit about your uh, the University of Pittsburgh and what sets it apart from other institutions. Yeah, no, Ryan. The fact that you mentioned the cathedral. I mean, the Cathedral of Learning is to say it's iconic. It's not even fair to say. I mean, it's so it is the second tallest education building in the world. So I think the first one might be in St. Petersburg, Russia. Um, don't quote me on that. You may have to, you could fix that in the post as they say in podcast land, but um, <laughs> that's a, it's, it's, it's startling. And so we just had homecoming and at night we do fireworks all around the cathedral and it's just unbelievable. But but Pitt is spectacular. You know, I, it just was not necessarily on my radar when I had the opportunity to interview here. But, you know, it's sort of everything, right? So it is a thriving undergraduate school where students study anything. And the boundaries between a lot of what they want to study are completely porous. Um, the graduate programs and research programs are top-notch. We are one of the top research universities as far as funding. We're number three in NIH funding. We don't say that enough, um, but we have created advancements in pretty much every field. We lead in startups and patents and other innovations. We've got, as I say, we're part of the ACC. We've got um, incredible teams to watch. We've got a big idea student uh, innovation center. It's just sort of is everything. And then you put it in Pittsburgh, so students have the advantage of an urban campus, but in an unbelievably livable city. First of all, with your pit card, you can take a bus anywhere, right? So students can pretty much go anywhere in and around the city and there's parks and there's restaurants. Um, it's safe. It's, you know, when people talk about traffic here, they don't know what they're talking about because it's not like it is in other places. So I think Pitt's just at this wonderful intersection um, in, you know, this really interesting part of this, of the state. So I love it. Yeah. I remember the city being more rolling and hilly than I anticipated Oh yes, for some Very reason, hilly. but, um, the landscape I thought was really beautiful as well. All right. Well, so back to, to, you know, fundraising and, and alumni engagement again, uh, we always, uh, from time to time, like to have fill in the blank questions or sentence completion questions, which, uh, get folks to give some interesting responses here and there, but I got two questions and sort of in one. And the first one is when it comes to leading advancement programs, I get most excited when is one question. And then the second one is the part of fundraising and engagement that frustrates me the most is blank. So here we go. Open-ended questions. The thing that gets you the most excited and the thing that gets you the most frustrated. So I think the most excited is when Somebody who, you know, speaks up for the first time or sort of raises a hand with a creative idea to tackle some issue, right? Because that signals a lot of things. First of all, it signals that we've got a culture where people feel they can share ideas. It's safe. You're not going to get yelled down. Um, but it also is a culture that's welcoming creativity. Like I think faster and faster, we have to be looking around corners to stay ahead on giving trends. And so I just love it. If you're in a room and, you know, the person who's new or the person you just hired who was a student worker says, Hey, have we ever thought about this? And it's just, it's just great. Right. I just think that says a lot about culture and it says a lot about, you know, people who can get excited about what can be kind of a wonky job. The frustrating, gosh, I just can't think of anything. Um, but if I were to think about it, I, I have been doing this for a long time at a lot of different kinds of organizations. And it simply amazes me how misunderstood our work is, right? Like there's either people who think, well, call Bill Gates. He should give us money. And I will say, do you know Bill Gates? 
Do you have his number? Um, Or people who just, I think, sometimes think, you know, like, this is a bad analogy, but they got the ball on the first yard line and they, they want credit for running the ball down the field. You know, it may be, again, that academic partner, somebody who ha- has played a role, but the number of touches to bring that person and how well all that stuff has to be done, they're sort of not paying attention to that. And so when it comes to restructuring or arguing for investment or making the case for why this event needs to happen this way, you know, sort of running into like, well, why does that matter? You know, at some point, I will say on days when maybe I'm a little impatient, I want to say, I I, I haven't asked for your opinion as to why it matters. <laughs> like, I'm the expert here and I'm telling you that's what we need to do. Now, obviously, that's not a really collegial way to go about business. But I don't feel that that always gets answered, gets asked of others. I, a former institution, we used to go meet with the provost staff once a month to sort of update them on advancement. And I, one of the deputy provost was a friend of mine. And I said, I cannot wait for you all to come down to our office and explain how you provost. I cannot wait for that meeting. That will be awesome. <laughs> so that's sort of, that, that sort of having to advocate and explain, no, I know you think you did this, but the fundraiser is the one who has managed this relationship, including X, Y, Z. So that fundraiser will be at that meeting and will be there to support you and help you be successful. Mm. This isn't about credit. And that I find, I'm going to say maddening. Chris, you're yeah. sort of holding your, your head. Is that yeah, my there. Um, I, I was thinking of a, a John Wooden quote, one of my favorite all-time coaches out there. I know you know who John Wooden is. Yes. If you don't look him up, because he's one of the greatest. Um, uh, he would say, it's amazing what can be accomplished when no one cares who gets the credit. Isn't that a great quote? It's a wonderful quote. See, I have the opposite when I can't remember who said it, but it's that failure is an orphan and success has many parents. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great one. I love it. Right. It's like, yeah. we'll share the credit with everybody. But yeah, yeah. No, that is that is great. But I don't think John Wooden had to explain to anybody that he was the coach. Yeah. When you win eight national titles in a row in basketball, you pretty much... You're best your... friends with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Like right, you gotta exactly. get it done. So anyway, that's I mean, those are again uptown problems, but it it is maddening. Uh, well, it's interesting too how sort of your answer was indicative of the fact that you know the external audience, the community, there's a misconception about what we do, and the internal audience, right? Uh, partners in the colleges, schools, and units, you know, don't exactly know how the sausage gets made right yeah. for a lot of those. What, what Ryan, what a really interesting thing at Pitt was that they hadn't been in a campaign for a really long time. So you have a series of deans who've come and gone and most deans yeah. there, I would say, I think all but one had never been in a campaign. Is That's that, true. My memory. Yeah. And they sort of all focus on, well, not the deans necessarily, but there is this perception that, you know, there's sort of this ick factor, like, Ooh, and it's like, well, it's a real privilege actually to be able to have these interesting conversations with people who don't have to give their money. It's not like they're looking for a car and we're the dealer they go to. So I think it's a real privilege, but I, I don't mind having the conversation once or twice. It's just, it's having to do it over and over again that I will say is not my happy times. Well, speaking about credit for accomplishments, you know, you've been there since 2017. A lot has happened. What what do you what are you most proud of as far as what the team at Pitt has been able to accomplish so far? Well, I do think the idea that we've closed a number of big gifts, so it doesn't look like an accident, right? We've closed a lot of five plus million dollar gifts. We closed a, a large gift from an alum and his wife two years ago, David Frederick and Sophie Lynn, and that named the Honors College, the David C. Frederick Honors College. The gift itself was very complicated. We had great partnership across the university, but when we closed the gift, um, and, and it's a gift in partnership with Oxford University, the work that was done both to create a great donor experience, but also to publicize the gift was so spot on, mm. you know, and that comes down to process, but it was tight and there was a real rollout of what was going to happen. And this was confirmed and this, and there were times when 
we had to advocate, no, no, we will have a shuttle for them because this, and, you know, and then I had those conversations of, you know, this is going to cost a lot of money. And I was like, I'm going to worry about that tomorrow. We're going to do this right. And we're going to show that we, this is how things get done. And so again, just the, the team ability to be really good at their jobs so that the donor had a great experience and the community could celebrate. I, I think those kinds of things are great. I do think the Pitt Alumni Association strategic plan with a shout out to Chris Marshall for his guidance, but they, again, not just what they came up with, but how they did it. We ran a task force that PA did on social justice and equity um, that also came out with some really meaningful outcomes that, you know, create credibility on these difficult topics with our community. Um, I think we've been pretty bold when it comes to event ideas and using AI and other technologies. And then, you know, I think fundamentally, like we got through COVID, right. And we kept the momentum going and that was, you know, I mean, it's just an insane time. I don't think we'll ever really grasp what that was like for everybody, but so I'm really, I'm grateful for this team and I'm really proud of them. And you're, I know the new chancellor, Gable, right? She's, she's still pretty new in the mm-hmm. role and even getting time on her agenda may be a, just a challenge to talk about anything. But I'm wondering if you have a sense of her take on alumni engagement in your overall mix. You're clearly a vice chancellor who gets it, right? You understand the value of alumni engagement. There are some vice presidents, vice chancellors. We have to convince that it's worth doing these things. You're not there. Where do you get it? Do you have a sense of where she under, how she understands alumni engagement in the mix or is it too soon to gauge or? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think the good news is this is, it's been an easy, hasn't even been a conversation. You know, her first day, she released a welcome video um, to alumni that welcomed their feedback on a survey. Mm-hmm. And so like her first point was to make sure she got out in front. She had an early meeting with the Pitt Alumni Association Executive Committee. She's met with the leaders of our African-American Alumni Council. I think she's made herself very... Um, as much as she can, very accessible and very visible. Um, She did just do her whole presentation to the full board. um, And I think she values, you know, it was a really candid conversation about how, what she's re-envisioning for the plan for Pitt. And she values those leaders as ambassadors. Um, I think some of it too, you know, with her kind of also comes down to process, right? Like our job is to make it as easy as possible for the chancellor to be present at events with our alumni. And so I think she's there and our job is to streamline it and just sort of clear the runway mm-hmm. again for her to be able to do that. But every indication is, I, I mean, just incredibly positive. That's great. Yeah. Good stuff. So it it's sounds helpful. like a lot of things, uh, I'm sorry. So I was just, it's helpful. It's not her first time as a chancellor or president. I think, you know, I think she comes with tremendous, understanding and awareness and experience. And that's, that's helpful too. It sounds like a lot of things have gone really well over the last uh, seven years or so. Is that Mm -hmm. right? I think I know where this is going. going, Right. Yeah. But but, um, (laughs) we'll round, we'll round up a little bit. Uh, but if you could go back in time, would you do anything differently? Uh, Have you tried something that you thought might work, but it just didn't? Yeah. I mean, I do think, Getting back to my comment about people not really understanding our business, I I wish I had been more specific, more consistent, and louder with the kinds of things that needed to be addressed, right? So talking about a prospect assignment protocol is not a thrilling conversation for people outside of our business, but it was critical, right? Like we had to figure out the rules around who got to talk to whom. And we did it in a way that was pretty clunky, but we had, as part of this reorg and bring all these people together, we had to involve them. And that took like four plus months. And I was thrilled when that happened, but I I should have just been more explicit as to why that was important. Um, I think, I think that would have helped helped me just get over the sort of what's what's happening kinds of conversations. And I think too, because I was so focused on just sort of the internal mechanics, 
that I was not as present with some of our top donors and leaders as much as I should have been. I felt that I was, but there were some that I really, it would have been smart for me to spend even more time and just make different decisions about how I used my, my calendar. I think those are definitely a couple of things I could have done better. Do you manage your own calendar or do you have somebody who's in charge of making sure you're at the right place at the right time? So my fabulous colleague, Diane Wood, does manage my calendar and she's crazy skilled with it. Sorry. And she always has me mute my phone, Chris. That's <laughs> um, <Touché. laughs> um, and I am, I am really, um, I, I live by my calendar, but but I was the one making decisions. Like I was just trying to put out a lot of fires. Yeah. Um, I just recently in the last year have, I've put Aaron Odata, a trusted colleague in as my chief of staff. And he's very good at kind of pointing out like, this does not look smart. And what are we doing yeah. here? So okay. I was a little late to that for sure. I just think it's an important, I mean, there are leaders out there who try to manage their own, you know, details of their schedule and all that. And it's, I think it's impossible once you get into the level of the work that you're doing, you need to have the two people you just mentioned by your side to do your work the way you're doing it, I think. Oh, well, or right. else you become the obstacle, right? And right. I feel like my calendar is like, I can talk right now or I can talk in six weeks. <laughs> like that's sort of how it works. And well, Diane, we're so grateful you found time for us for this. I can tell I, you that. Well, I know it's important. And Diane right. put it on the calendar, so. I know, um, Diane was great. Six weeks ago. Yeah, so she's, <laughs> she's critical. She's critical. Well, I'm, I'm going to throw out one that uh, could go a lot of directions here, but you know, Pennsylvania, in terms of politics and a state that's viewed as a swing state and national elections, and you have a Republican you know, legislator legislature here that can make things challenging if you're a public institution for all kinds of reasons. Um, how have you navigated that in terms of donors, stakeholders you know, at the f- state level? Has it been an issue for you, or is it something you can skirt around, let the chancellor handle those. <laughs> well, I support the chancellor. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, obviously the government relations, I think there's a couple of things like when there are contentious issues, whether it's the legislature or the press or whatever, again, I get back to process. We are never out of step with what the chancellor's office or university communications is saying. So we make sure we understand the talking points and we have a very disciplined way of sharing information, you know, making, you know, if we send out talking points, it says, this is internal. The last thing I need is somebody like emailing it to a bunch of people, but we want the people who manage relationships to be able to be knowledgeable about how to talk about these things. And that includes Rick who answers the phone for the Pit Alumni Association. He's often the first person. So we come up with a really quick feedback Luke, you know, Rick, Chris, right? He's amazing. I'm thinking of the hat right away. He handles everything, but like he is, he's the front door. So he needs to be, to know what to do. So we don't freelance on any of those things. We obviously partner with government relations on advocacy, right? And equipping our alumni and our parents and friends with talking to legislatures. But I think beyond that, you know, what it also comes down to is this effort at engagement, right? So if somebody doesn't really have a relationship with Pitt, they went to school a long time ago, they don't come back and they see something that they think is objectionable, like they're just going to be mad. But if somebody truly cares and then hears something that makes them uncomfortable, they're going to call their person, but they're going to call them within the context of, I really love the university. How can we sort this out? Yeah. And that's a completely different dynamic. Yep. So I, I think it's all over the place, but, but we just try to be really consistent. And as I say, we don't get out over our skis. It's a good philosophy. I'm back on, on making it, I love your philosophy, but I'm holding back on making a comment that will haunt me if somebody hears me say what I'm thinking in my mind. Yeah. I <laughs> wouldn't want that. This is a family show. Family <laughs> show. I'll just, I'll just say it this way. Just be glad of the state you're in versus the other options that you could be in on this these topics that come up from time to time. It's it's so complicated, and you know we have an incredibly diverse community. A lot, yep. I mean, it, it, and and we also have people from overseas, you know, who see things through the media yeah, differently. Sure, right, yeah. yeah. Um, I think we've done a really good job, both as a university and particularly for our digital communications, at 
creating more messengers, right? So we're, we're having students tell the stories and faculty. And I think that helps too. It, it gets, it, it's not an institutional um, message. It's a human message. And I think that does help build the trust yeah, too. Agreed. Agreed. So I suppose some of these topics, the, the topics around politics could keep you up at night uh, mm-hmm. if you let them, but it sounds like you have a good philosophy of staying on message with the chancellor's office. If there is something that keeps you up at night these days, what is it? You know, I mean, I do worry about the stress of everyday life on my colleagues. Like COVID hit everybody differently, right? Whether you were trying to deal with caregiving requirements or you had an autoimmune disease, like whatever. I mean, it was just out of nowhere. And while in many ways we're out of it, like we're not, right? I mean, the world is a dumpster fire. And I think each of us wears that differently. And, you know, trying to be empathic and, you know, somebody talked about being the consoler in chief during COVID. I remember hearing a couple of peers saying, but also kind of, we still have a job to do. We still have people we serve. We, we still have goals to achieve. I think just, you know, hoping that I'm striking the right balance. I'm creating the environment for managers to strike the right balance. But yeah, I mean, I just think it's it's hard. And every like I say, everybody's journey has its own challenges and we don't know what they are. So I, I, I think, you know, in a profession where you are trying to, in your own way, make the world better, the fact that it seems harder and harder, um, you know, that weighs, that weighs pretty heavily. Always used to keep me up at night too, thinking about the people, right? It was never the the work or the strategy or like that that stuff. It was always the the people and the relationships and keeping every everybody moving in the right direction. Uh, so, thinking ahead, a couple of years down the line, what do you think alumni engagement looks like? What's the future of the engagement space and advancement uh, for looking ahead? Well, I do think you know, I feel like I need to create a position of a futurist because I do think figuring out what tools, whether it's AI and how we use AI in non-creepy ways, like remember the great uh, tools that we know of, but, but how we use it in other ways, like does AI cut down on how much time we spend writing things? Does AI make it easier to figure out what a gift intention should look like? You know, like, what does that mean? Um, and how does that free up staff time? It doesn't, I, I don't think it should supplant the personal. What does it do to create more opportunities for the personal? Um, I think that's critical. I think um, for a place like Pitt, where some, you know, half of the graduates graduated after 2000, their experience as students was very different than somebody who graduated much earlier, where what you did was you went to football right? You went to men's basketball and it was awesome. And it was amazing. The different, I keep using the word journeys, but the different paths that students cut through their time at Pitt, it, I mean, it's, it, it's infinite. And so I think the other piece is like, how do we keep meeting them? Is it career? But when we talk about career guidance, we're really talking about life guidance, right? Because part of your career choice is when do I go to grad school? You know, wow. Should I buy a house, but I still have these loans? And how do we help them still feel that there's value to their engagement after graduation? Um, So I think it is embracing diversity, leaning into it, being prepared for it, and then really being so future forward on what, what tools exist and what tools should be created. Um, and that's hard. It's like, it's like Jetsons, right? We still don't have the cars that fold it up into briefcases, but we thought we would. Um, but I, I think the technology, I think we need to push for the technology to move ahead for our field. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, that, that gives us a good segue into our uh, Friday cheers section. Uh, Chris, we like to end each show with uh, sort of water cooler talk, you know, things that we're thinking about, an article, a podcast, a book, a movie, something that could be work-related, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's something uh, that you use to uh, uh, kill time or uh, for some inspiration in one way or another. What 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 is your Friday cheers? 
Yeah. So I'm so happy. So there's a show on HBO. Yeah. This is not going to be work related, Ryan. That's cool. It's a show on HBO or is it Max, whatever it's called now, called uh, Starstruck, which is in its third season. Um, The creator is a woman named Rose Matafio. And she's from New Zealand, and it is about a New Zealand woman in London who falls in love with a movie star and the sort of ups and downs of their relationship. It is the most delight. It's like eating a yummy dessert. It is the most delightful show. It's like 25 minutes long every episode. The characters are quirky and memorable and whip smart and so funny. And just it just it's just the most charming show. And the third season just came out and I blazed right through it this weekend. It was like (laughs) sitting under a weighted blanket with like a steaming bowl of mac and cheese. It made me so (laughs) happy. (laughs) I was so happy. And it doesn't get enough press. So Starstruck was the name. Starstruck on Max. It's just that's a great great recommendation. And she's brilliant. She's a stand-up. She's just brilliant. Awesome, yeah. Chris. How about you? Friday. My blame compared to Chris's, but it's it's a it's a work water cooler moment topic that's come up enough with client work recently, and it, it should be a topic of one of our podcasts, maybe even a thought piece we write, Ryan. But it's the the and you and I just on a call right before this one about the hit the same thing, which is the role of your alumni board, alumni council, and I have so many clients talking about this topic and what should it be, what could it be, how do you get a board who's one way to go another or or just to find the focus that they need. And we're doing a bunch of work with clients right now on this topic. So it's just something that, you know, in the interest of time, I won't go into the whole, uh, you know, the whole detail here, but put it just suffice it to say that I think it's something that we should be spending more time with our volunteer boards thinking about and articulating and being really clear on what they do and ultimately sharing what they don't do, uh, which is a lot of times we get in trouble. I see Chris, your head is nodding because you're doing this. No idea what you're talking about. Tell me more because I've never been there. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 That's mine. Right? Shallow yeah. Now, Chris. That was a good one. I feel pretty shallow, but no, I love yours for, for the shallowness and fun of it. The, 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 the weighted blanket with a warm bowl of Mac and cheese is a much better <laughs> picture in my mind. No, but that's important. Those are important conversations. Mine is uh work related, but um, hopefully it's also like a bowl of Mac and cheese. Uh, there, there was a really interesting article on Inside Higher Ed this week from a few days ago. That's Q and A. Being a university's chief, first chief AI officer. So we actually, were, you know, we're talking about technology and and what the future looks like. And Mark Daly is the chief AI officer, first in the world, of Western University in Canada. And actually, I know we had Temi Akinaina who is the AVP of alumni uh, engagement at Western University on this podcast. Really awesome. They're doing Uh, some cool stuff there. That's for sure. They are doing some cool stuff there. And the article is, um, you know, like a QA, and a but it really gets into, you know, what are we, what would someone in this role be thinking about? And Chris, it touched on some of the things that you were saying around, well, how is the university going to be using this type of tool? You know, Mm -hmm. what, how should we be thinking about using these tools more effectively? How do we use them you know, smartly as an institution? And there's no one yet really to go to at most universities that's yeah. got you know, not only a take, but a level of authority to say, yeah. we should do it this way. And I think more and more universities, you know, we have chief technology officers, right, who usually are about the infrastructure of the technology to university, but this is slightly different, right? When, you know, um, I'm not sure we need the, the, the gentleman in his quotas. I'm not sure that we need an office of AI at our institution. Uh, we don't necessarily need a department of running water. He writes, you know, but AI will be a part of the core infrastructure and it's a topic we teach and research. So, you know, I think the role of transforming a university to to be thinking about that future catalyst type of, uh, you know, um, you know, who's driving some of that change and, and whose opinion are we relying on for suggesting the pathways for the university board, looking out several years and staying on top of these things. So anyway, I thought that was really interesting. Like first university to hire a chief AI officer. You guys are tied for first. I'm a distant third. 
in that Friday Cheers. Not at all. Not, but it's a great statement of the university saying this is important enough that we're going to create yeah, this. Yeah. I mean, that that says something. I, I don't think it'll be the first and last we hear of this. I think there'll be yeah. others that will coming online. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's interesting. Like you might initially think of it as kind of gimmicky, but but no, I think it's really really important. We've never seen a change, you know, like this before in terms of technology since you know the internet was created, really. And I think it's incredibly important. I agree. All right, let's wrap things up. My wife is blowing me up. It's time to pick up the kids and uh, do <laughs> soccer practice and watch the Philadelphia Phillies try to make it to the World Series all those things. And um, so, Chris, Chris, thank you so much for making the time. Oh, for what us a today. pleasure. I, I really privilege. appreciated being included. I think it's great. I appreciate you it. You are a rock star in this field, and we loved your comments. And the fact that we have you as our, what is it, Ryan, 36th guest on our show? 36. Is it on? That's wonderful. Well, thanks for uh, convening the group. It was, uh, I, I always learn stuff. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Again. Well, be well, listeners. Thank you so much. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks' time with Carla Willis. Take care, everybody. Bye.